Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Father John here with... Father Sean. Uh, and Jacob. And Jacob. We're missing, uh, we're missing Father Mike. He's on his in transit, so he'll be joining us shortly. Yeah, he got uh, stuck in a meeting at the cathedral, but he's on his way. And uh, this is a very special episode. We're getting the four of uh, boys together here yeah. uh, to take on a list of your questions. Thanks for sending like, those in. It's serious. I just I do want to share. Uh, I was thinking about this last night. We're gonna have all four of us. It's gonna be father, 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 Jacob, yeah. deacon elect. Did you guys? I'm not even not even yet. Uh, but have you ever seen the show Three to One Penguins? It's like an old Christian cartoon. I have not, no. There's like these space penguins, and the theme song would go through, and, and three of them had really cool names. It was like, do 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 Zigil, Midgel, Fidgel. And then the last guy was Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. So I, I feel like Kevin sometimes. You're Kevin. Yeah. Sounds like VeggieTales uh, or something. It was. I think it was the same studio that did VeggieTales. So anyway. You are um, to drop that under in. six months, as we talked about yeah. last week on the podcast. So, so you're, you're close to being... I don't know. Somehow, having a title, somewhat sounding more qualified important. to uh, address these questions right. with you guys today. That is true. Yeah. So um, it's also fun to sit here with um, two of my illustrious students. Right. So it's kind of a it's kind of a a quiz or a test. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of this is like comprehensive exams. So so basically, if you're just tuning into this, um, our friend Katie Pellucci, uh, who just moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, longtime listener and uh, longtime friend of ours has been helping us out with the podcast. And uh, seeing as we're all kind of old and lame, especially Father Sean, um, she said, you know, it might be a good idea. It's just feminine genius at work to actually like include people uh, in the topic selection. And we've talked about doing this for a long time, but whenever, but now we're really committing to like, we'd like to do this a couple times a year where we just kind of get the four guys together and then. Uh, just intake a bunch of questions. And so we, we pulled them from uh, Instagram, Facebook, and, and just the ways that we communicate. Most of them are from Jacob's mother, Mary Machado. So shout out to her. I think she sent in... Ghost wrote most of them. I yeah, think. she sent in... Uh, she told me she sent 20 questions. Holy cow. So, <laughs> love that woman. So um, hopefully uh, Mary Machado will be happy with at least... Statistically, she's going to get at least one or two right out of this. So Hopefully. Yeah, I'm sure some of the wilder ones were definitely hers. And so... Yeah, we got a lot. Uh, Katie kind of um, called them down for us. So I'm sure we got even more than this. But uh, yeah, I love seeing what people are wondering about. Um, Broad range of questions from doctrinal to pastoral to speculative theology to um, yeah, just kind of across the board. So keep asking those questions. Um, We, uh, yeah, I mean, this has been really fun. And and, um, We'll see how the questions go. I think what we're going to do is we're going to kind of uh, tag team. So one guy will kind of take the lead on asking the questions, and then we'll have anybody throw anything in here. Father Mike will blow in here in just a moment or so, and uh, things will get interesting. We're not sure what to name this uh, yet. I, I think we have some time to think about it, but we have some titles here, but Catholic Stuff You Should Ask is kind of in the lead, though we're not crazy about that name. Uh, so we do need uh, ideas for kind of a reoccurring name for this kind of uh, special edition podcast, which will be coming out hopefully Two, three times a year. All right, you ready? Let's go. Who do I start with? Father Sean. Or should we start with you? Let's start with Kevin. Kevin. (laughs) All right. Let's see here now. All right, Kevin. Mary Magdalene was a loyal follower of Jesus, traveled with him, and witnessed his crucifixion and resurrection, yet wasn't officially considered one of the apostles. Why? 
Yeah, I, uh, I like this question because um, there's a couple well, – Deacon Kyle Tannehill, who lives at your house – or lived at your house, right. I guess. Um, he's actually writing his thesis on Mary Magdalene. Uh, and so I've been discussing with him. I, I brought her into a paper I had last semester. Um, we've been having these discussions about her. So there seems to be like um, – at least in – St. John Vianney Seminary, um, kind of like a, a new interest um, academically and spiritually in who is Mary Magdalene, who does the church say she is. Um, and uh, she said, you know, she was not officially considered one of the apostles. Why? Um, she is in, since 2016, Pope Francis declared, uh, she elevated her, her feast day, her memorial, mm-hmm. to a feast day on July 22nd. And so the feast is the same level as all the other apostles, right? And so she is, um, you know, been elevated in the church calendar since 2016. Uh, but the question is like, why before 2016, we had, you know, over 2000 years of church history, was she so present, seemingly so important? And the question is, why was she forgotten? Was she forgotten? Um, and it's, I, I think it's an interesting one, because if we go back, uh, she was actually called an apostle by St. Thomas, Aquinas, um, who's the common doctor of the church, who in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John discussed Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles. Um, and she's actually the patron of the Dominican order, the order of preachers. Hmm. And yeah, they call her the apostola, apostolorum. So the apostle, the apostle, he said, so I'm happy you're... Yep. This is, you're doing great on your comps right now. Um, and so this this title that Pope Francis uh, elevated or showed as she truly was the apostle to the apostles uh, wasn't Pope Francis creating this in 2016. This has come from a long tradition, uh, at least dating back to St. Thomas, uh, probably before that. There was discussion of Mary Magdalene in every, uh, you know, Augustine, Chrysostom, um, these giants of scriptural study, uh, exegesis, spirituality, um, from the father's period would discuss her and the importance of her being at the tomb first, announcing it. Uh, I think it's Augustine who mentions, or maybe it might have been Chrysostom, but that um, just as the voice of woman was the first to proclaim the Christ in Elizabeth at the visitation, it was the voice of woman who was the first to announce the resurrection through Mary Magdalene. Um, So even here we're seeing, you know, I think one of the modern trends with Mary Magdalene, and you see it with like uh, The Last Temptation of Christ or the Magdalene movie, which try and um, highlight kind of this possibly like romantic relationship between Mary Magdalene and Jesus or something. It's trying to do something else. And then there's kind of like a um, focus on a woman's role in the church in the modern contemporary mindset and in the church as well. And so Mary Magdalene's coming back up, and why didn't we highlight her before? Um, and I think it's interesting. It comes to me that a lot of those questions come down to power. A question of oh, power, and power is influence, and power is title. And we look at the apostles, and we say, okay, the apostles are the leaders of the church. Um, but I think it's really interesting to think, uh, to realize that in the New Testament, apostles use three different ways. The term apostle is actually attributed to Christ in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, that Christ is called, Jesus is called the apostle from the Father. Uh, And then you have um, the 12 apostles, which you get in all the Gospels, especially Luke, named the apostles. Uh, But then you have Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, Titus, are called apostles. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so you've got the apostles ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the 12 thrones in Revelation, right? 
Um, and then Paul becomes the ruler over the 13th tribe, the rest of the world, the Gentiles. So you've got kind of this authority figure with those. But then with Timothy, with Titus, with Silvanus, and then even in Corinthians, some unnamed apostles sent. And it's just the sending of the word, the sending of the message is an apostle. Uh, the messenger is an apostle. Uh, and so the church has always used apostle in different ways. And I think we kind of get tied up in the figure head of it versus like maybe the, the charism of it, um, which is a, a pro- proclaimer of the gospel. Um, and so in that, you know, Mary Magdalene uh, was treated by the fathers, but maybe not as emphasized. But I think it's not just her. Uh, St. Joseph has had a huge resurgence in the West in our contemporary era, um, kind of the consecration to Jesus through St. Joseph now uh, that's kind of making waves. We're focusing on Joseph in a new way and a new era of the church. Um, maybe it's in God's providence that Mary Magdalene is rising now to teach the church something as opposed to having been risen in 400 or 500 or 600 AD. Um, I think we need to remember that the church isn't this, you know, strictly political power structure, but that the Holy Spirit's at work uh, and God is, is bringing, um, bringing different saints into different places and different times. Uh, so. That was a very good answer. Mine are definitely not going to be that put together. I don't know about yours, Shani. Um, Wait, one, one comment <laughs> yeah. about that, though. I, I can't remember the name of the church in Rome, but there's that church where you can go see St. Mary Magdalene's foot. Yeah, which is gigantic. Which is, that's right, like my size. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it could be, you could say it could be your foot, honestly. But it's encased in gold, right? And it's considered the first foot to enter the tomb, mm-hmm. which is really beautiful. So you can go and venerate. Yeah. And there's a, is it in France? The There's the... Um, yep, Saint-Bomb, where, where she was a hermit, yeah. And, and then she's buried in Aix-en-Provence, I forget, or um, Saint-Maximin, I think, yeah. And I think, again, that's just like the, the hermit life is just so foreign to us right yeah. now. We think of that as a lesser calling, but, you know... Um, it's, it's really not. And St. John the Baptist, no greater man has been born of woman than John the Baptist, went into the desert as a hermit to be the first one to proclaim the coming of the Christ. So this, this monastic hermit, you know, desert prayer experience is actually profound. Yeah, if you have a secularized vision of the church where these are the original CEOs and it's still run by male-only CEOs, like if this is how you think about the church, uh, then yeah, it's always going to be like, yep, the Mary Magdalene just got totally left out and and screwed by the whole thing, and it's like, well, what if Mary is the church and hiddenness, Pache, our conversation last week, uh, is is the essence of the church? Then greatness is not con- attributed to office. Office is at, at service, and and the twelve apostles are designated specifically as apostles for the sake of being in the person of Christ, and they do that as men because God was man, and that's a whole other question, mm-hmm. but. Mary Magdalene is a deeper source of, and a more pure sur- source of the of the transmission of the message of the res- of the death and resurrection of Christ, and that's she is the foundation of the apostolic preaching, and I think so. Covered that well. Great. I think I better hold us to about five minutes on each Sorry. question. Is that okay? No, that was yeah, I great. I got excited though. No, that was awesome. And I think, uh, yeah, you're right. There's something I, I would just say also. <laughs> I almost said St. Andrew Polito. Not yet. Sorry, lady. You're still <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, our friend Andrew Polito is a consecrated virgin, has a devotion to Mary Magdalene. I think that's part of it as well. Is yep. that she's really kind of brought this to the fore. Um, okay, Shani, you ready? I think so. Why do we go to pray for the dead at cemeteries if we believe they're sounds, 
souls, souls. I'm guessing souls, souls typo, souls, yeah. have already gone to heaven, purgatory, hell, or are no longer with their bodies? I think it's a great question. Why do we, why do we go to cemeteries if the souls are not there? I think uh, we just have to remember that we are body and soul as humans, right? So we're comprised of both our body and our soul, which means when we, when we learn things, we learn it through the external, through uh, touch, through taste, through um, sight, through smell, etc. That's how we learn things. Like we're bodily creatures. We learn things through the body. Uh, obviously, when we die, our soul is separated from our body. Uh, please, God, let our souls go to heaven. But there's just like this tension then of uh, our bodies are always going to long for our soul. Because we're bodily creatures, then we need that in, enmeshed in us. So, so certainly, yeah, the soul has left the cemetery. It's no longer there, but it's good for us then to go to the cemetery because it connects us back with that person to see the tombstone, to see the casket, to see that place, to have those smells and uh, of the cemetery and, and to bring back those memories of this is where that person was buried. This is why we laid that person to rest. Uh, again, we're, we're bodily creatures, so we need that in order to elevate us. So I don't think it's so much like we have to go to the cemetery to pray for the dead, but I think it teaches us to be back uh, on the earth in a sense, to, to connect with those people. Uh, it helps us, um, I think, as creatures, you know, to, to lay the flowers there, uh, to pray there. So, um, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off though. No, I, I yeah, go ahead. I, I remember going it. to a funeral at a church years ago and on the Holy card, I've probably talked about this before on the Holy card, it says, um, such and such woman died on this day and became an angel of God. Mm. And I was just like, that's not what we believe. That's not Christian. Right. Uh, and there's this sense that the body doesn't matter and the soul um, is the thing that's kind of now drifting in the ether or whatever. And we, we believe that grace transforms persons and it elevates them into a supernatural life. And that's the body and the soul. Mm. You know, like the body is not just this kind of shell. It's very platonic uh, to think like that. And so the body matters. This is why cremation is permitted, but come on, boomer generation, you don't all have to be cremated, okay? Hey, Mikey. Oh. Here he is. So uh, I would just say, and then I, li I love your point about like going to the cemetery is because physically when we pray, it physically matters where we pray, how we pray, and connecting with a, a, you know, a tombstone in a place where that body was, where you said goodbye to that body, yeah. uh, trusting and hope that it will come again. So welcome, Father Mike. Hey, Good fellas. To see you, man. Let's kick this fall off. Is it fall kickoff? <laughs> fall kickoff. Kick oh, kicking it off. We're kicking. So, so far, are you having fun? You got some juicy questions? Yeah, so you get to pick three from that list there. Are you going to have uh, to give me a minute? You got we plenty of time. surprise you now. We thought we'd just throw some crazy ones at you. Do you prefer you. the uh, traffic in the morning when you're <laughs> kind of running late and close to work or in the afternoon when it's hot? Hot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think morning, the afternoon. Definitely morning. That's yeah. not on the list. I don't like the hot. How's your staff meeting? Um, oh, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was long. Uh, I about, guess, I guess this, long. Uh, I across guess the city. It was a staff end, meeting. Our, uh, our answer to um, the body and the soul. I think that's, <laughs> unless you had any other, any other thoughts, but I thought you, you covered it well. All I right. don't think so. I, maybe yeah. just one last thought would be, when you go to a cemetery and pray, I think you experience the 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 beauty of actually being there and praying for that soul. Yeah. Well, while we let... Uh, no, no, no. I want to oh. throw one at him. Oh, right away. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. He's ready for this. Is very, yeah, this is a very... There's a lot of questions. This is a very... Hey, and then you can go to me after this. Greetings to the um, 
the fan base or whatever, listener land. There's a lot of questions here, so good yeah. work. I didn't know if there would be responses to that weird announcement that we made <laughs> yeah <laughs> or if it would be understandable so okay, father mike is a is a lover of the holy land he studied there so i think this is a perfect question for okay. him why are some places holy when god is present to us everywhere this is about Ooh. five down why are some places holy wow um yeah just sitting down let's see thinking <laughs> sacred space some places are consecrated um to specifically have prayer happen there and have people um, respectful there. Sometimes, like if there's a tabernacle, Jesus is present in a very physical way that's um, privileged. Um, sometimes there's places that are just exceptionally beautiful and you want to relate to God, like those mountains. Um, what else can you say? Oh, sometimes you're in the presence of a saint, like if I'm at Saint, Saint oh, Father John's house, then oh <laughs> I <my> feel God. like. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Was that all right? It what was, yeah. And any, I, I, I think it ties well to what Sean was just talking about a second ago, which is like our vision of reality is sacramental as Catholics. Sacraments are not just things that, it's not just the fortune cookie we get every Sunday. It's it's the vision that we we interpret and relate to God through a sacramental mode, which means visible signs communicate invisible realities. And that means that land, mm. a place where God called Abraham and designated a chosen people and sanctified a temple under Solomon and Christ, I mean, everything, and that continues in the church. We really believe that things are blessed and sanctified. Bless your homes, bless your cemeteries. Like, it's not just superstition. It's it's about a sacramental vision, and that's been largely rejected, I think, by Protestants, and um, and that's part of the, the reason that we get into this kind of weird, almost Gnostic thing of like yeah. things that are invisible are real, but the physical doesn't right. matter. You know? I think too, uh, our sacramental worldview in the church is so profound where we have the mass is Calvary. The mass is the sacrifice of Christ, right? Um, that's true, present there. And so when we make a pilgrimage to our church on Sunday, we're going to a holy place that is Calvary. Uh, in a in a really real way, but it doesn't look like Calvary when I fly to Israel or the Holy Land, right? It doesn't. I'm not walking on the exact rock, and so we've got this kind of mystical reality of sacramental sign um, that, if I can maybe misunderstood or or poorly understood, well, then why not everything else that reminds me of anything? You know, when I think of I hear this song, it makes me think of this, and so now I'm having this encounter, and I'm. I'm present to it. There's a reality there, but it's less so than the the sacramental reality, and then almost even less so than, um, or definitely less so than, like, walking into your friends or your childhood home rather than just having the the thought of it. There's also just a straight-up loss of the objective things, like, are not, they're not constituted by my experience. I'll tell you what I'm thinking about in the back of my head here. (laughs) having drinks with the Bromley family uh, for Addie's birthday and her sister, Nora, who I love, just a wild woman. Um, She's just like straight up, just like talking about mass. And I don't like going to mass um, because it doesn't resonate with me in my experience. And the whole point is these are great questions, but there's a presupposition behind the questions, which is things are meaningful if I make them meaningful. And it's the same with places. So the mountains are more beautiful for me than the church, therefore I want to get married outside. That I understand the logic. Mm. The problem is the presupposition that's that it's it's about conforming your mind to reality and to things. And I think sometimes we just lose that there's an objectivity to to sanctifying. It's not just 
whatever I think is holy becomes holy for me. So great. Yeah, You're going to continue on, Father John. You're a teacher. Uh, they say if you can teach oh, no. to a child, oh man, here we go. You can teach to anyone. And so we have how. Would you explain to a five-year-old what the difference between God and Jesus is? Oh, I saw that one. Yeah, that's a great question. Best question on the whole list. Hardest question on the whole list. How do I explain to a five-year-old? Oh, man. All right, I'm thinking about my nephew, Caleb, who's four, and attempting this conversation. The first thing I would say is that God is Father. So we kind of live in this sense that God's this kind of this idea. He's just way up there. And, and we got to talk about, when we talk about God, we talk about the Father. But it's not just the Father. He's with the Son and the Spirit. And so so there's persons. It's like a family. So thinking of, I would probably try and explain to a kid, like a, it's like God is like your family. He's not just this idea up in the sky. Um, and that relationship is what he is, and it's the perfect family. It's love. It's the perfection of love, using words here that already don't make sense to Caleb. <laughs> so Jesus comes from that family and really is God, but also is the point of access to, to God. And the real thing that he's pointing us to is the Father, who's the head of the family, and he's the one who uh, is the source of everything, and that's, that's the place where we find total and, and true happiness and fulfillment. Something like that? Would you? What would you yeah, guys say? No, I like that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie in another question here before we start. Uh, we've got another question from a six-year-old who says, oh, I like that one too. How does Jesus and Mary not fall out of heaven? Is there a floor in heaven? And why are churches so tall inside if people are so short? And I just want to bring those <laughs> oh, in because, nice. because I think this Best is a question. great example for all of us uh, how to ask questions because these kids are philosophers. They're realists. They believe what they've been told as true, and now they're trying to understand it. So they, they believe that Mary and uh, Jesus are in heaven with bodies. And he's like, well, if heaven, I'm told heaven's up there in the sky. That's how we usually explain it. How do they not fall out of the sky? That's a great question. It's a philosopher's question, right? So Father Mike, Father Sean, go. <laughs> well, so do you know about jetpack technology? <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> maybe they have wings like birds like the angels do. <laughs> so heaven is not up heaven is somewhere beyond and so it, traditionally or like throughout history heaven has been depicted as up it's just beyond it's out of reach in the heavens yeah in the heavens and even the terms yeah the words describe um in the heavens just like uh, the stars are in the heavens yeah, even in the scripture that we have jesus ascended into heaven that's right he went up that's right so. he went into the clouds yeah and i think that helps communicate to people where god is and um it's yeah it's i like the i like the term beyond but i i like to challenge people to consider heaven is very very close it's just mm-hmm. invisible yeah. and um that doesn't quite answer this guy's question <laughs> um there are bodies but we don't know exactly where heaven is it's an invisible reality mm-hmm. for us now but we yeah. will encounter them we'll be wherever they are and we'll all have bodies when we're there one of the and great I don't know if there's gravity there. <laughs> yeah. I love that kids are so imaginative and yet so literal. Yeah. That's what makes their questions so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think we, last time we fielded questions, I remember some kid was like, um, how did Jesus ascend and not break the time-space continuum? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I, have you been watching Jimmy Neutron or yeah, whatever that show was? So, yeah. Kids are smart. They so, try and fill the space. I remember about the age, this age, I, I thought we were praying, our father who aren't 
and, and aren't <laughs> oh, no. in heaven. In heaven yeah. And I was like, well, we pray this. So like, I, I know Where God's in heaven, but he's all, I guess we're praying to the God, like God when he's not in heaven. And that's who we're praying to right now. And then I can go pray to God in heaven later. That was my justification awesome. for how we were doing. But it's, it's like, I'm trying to make sense of something I believe. And yeah. I think that's a great mode um, for us as questioners uh, to, to go into, to not have a presupposition of, I know, and I want the church to get around my you know, presupposition, rather than saying, I believe, and now I seek to understand. So yeah. I wondered yeah. if it was, uh, give us this day our deli bread. <laughs> 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 or deli bread. You would like deli bread. Um, there's a joke in Spanish. Uh, why are the, the doors on churches so tall? Uh, muy alta. And the answer is in order for the uh, el altísimo to enter, right? So Ooh. it's a play on words. But So why are the church doors so tall? Because the, the most high God has to enter, and only he can enter through the doors that are really tall. So Thank you, Sean, for actually answering the question. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, that's why the, it's because we're short, but God is so tall and needs to enter. That's right. Wonderful. All right, who's got the next question? Let's go back to Jacob. Uh-oh. All right, we did around the horn already. You ready? Let's go with the first one. This is a cool question. Mm. I want to make sure that I don't disguise truth with only what I believe or because something was stated by a priest who believes similar to me. I want to make sure I truly believe in truth, even if it causes me to change my thinking. Where do I go to find truth in all things? Yeah. So this is a good one. Um, I think this is coming, uh, maybe it's not, but I think this is coming from a place of how do we know what is true? There's so many voices in the world. Uh, there's, there's voices in the church that seem to be contradictory. How do I know what is true, what is false, what is misinformation, what is true? Like, we're wrestling with this, right? And I went to St. Paul uh, in second letter of Thessalonians because uh, context with Paul, he just sent a letter. He's teaching the Thessalonians. And then apparently there's somebody who's spreading misinformation to the Thessalonians that somebody has forged a letter in Paul's name and they're getting really confused about when the second coming is coming. And John or, and Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembly to meet him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Um, and it harkens back to Matthew 24 when he says, you know, no one will know the hour, uh, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father. Um, and so what he's saying is like, don't be uh, distraught in mind uh, when something's getting stirred up, and go back to what he, he ever exhorts his people, go back to the gospel we proclaim to you and revealed to you in our actions, right? And so we have the church to reveal doctrine. Uh, we have the, you know, the corpus of the church to go back to, to be rooted in, and I think we get really caught up in this seems contradictory or inflammatory or what's going on. And it's really scandalous. It's really scandalous when a priest or a bishop or a religious leader or a politician who proclaims to be Catholic is saying one thing and it doesn't seem to square and nobody's really correcting him. What's going on? And I would just say with Paul, don't be excited in mind by these things. Trust in the church. Um, trust that the deposit of revelation has come through Jesus Christ, that the church is interpreting it. Um, and so St. John Chrysostom says, the apostles did not hand down everything in writing. Many unwritten things were handed down as well, and both written and unwritten are worthy of belief. Uh, so let us also regard the tradition of the church as worthy of belief. And I think we need to start trying to really think as men and women of the church, uh, to root ourselves in there, and not in a polemical battle with each other or with the church, uh, but try and go to the sources. And we're given reason. 
And so we shouldn't be the Google generation anymore. We shouldn't just look for the quick answer. We should really wrestle like Jacob did with the Lord and say, I'm going to wrestle with these questions and find them in the heart of the church and then believe. Uh, So that's where the truth is. It's tough because you want me to probably just tell you, hey, what's the truth of this argument or that? Um, But it's it's really in the heart of the church, which does have doctrinally defined uh, statements of belief. Uh, We can start with the creed and then move on from the councils after that. But um, that's truth. That's truth. If anybody says anything against that, you know. Uh, But there's other things that are a bit tougher, you know, and and that's where we use our reason. Uh, We trust priests. Um, We don't want to just follow what feels, you know, like something that emotionally fills me or. Yeah. I think orthodoxy, orthodoxy, right, to be in the right truth, right worship is what we're going for. We all strive for that, but we have to remember uh, that in a sense, it's kind of cheap today in the sense that, like you were saying, Jacob, you can just Google, find it. You can ask a priest, find the answer. We have to wrestle with it. We have to remember people shed their blood for orthodoxy for centuries before we have these precise teachings that we have today. We have to wrestle with the truth. We have to seek it, but there is some wrestling there. I, uh, I, this was m- probably my favorite question of the whole thing. It's also a really difficult one. And I think behind it is the kind of fear that it's like, I grew up in Iowa or Colorado in an Irish, German, Hispanic, Catholic family. So I received the truth of this. And part of the, the, the worldview that we live in is what's called pluralism, where there is no actual objective or absolute claims. It's just, we just kind of exist within a plurality of things. Um, and I think this question is saying, well, how do I how do I verify this? And the, what what came to mind? There's we could talk about this for an hour. Um, but what came to mind, Jacob, while you were speaking, was have you guys ever read Walker Percy's um, um, message in a bottle? Yeah, in your class. In my class, okay. <laughs> no, did you read that in my class? No, you didn't have fundamental with me. I did not. It's one of my favorite short essays. Um, basically, this guy is a castaway on an island. And he, he loses all of his memory. And, but he's taken onto this island and he kind of finds that it's civilized and there are people there and he kind of grows up and starts to kind of build his life. He gets married, his kids, gets a job, whatever. But every day he takes walks on the beach. And uh, these messages in a bottle start kind of coming to the shore. And inside the bottle, there's hundreds of them that just keep washing up every day. And he picks them up and he starts to organize them in his mind and say, I, I promise I'll make this quick. Um, Jacob's looking at his phone. Um, but basically what he says is there's, there's two kinds of messages in the bottle. There's news and facts. So a fact is like um, Denver is the capital of Colorado. That's a message. He puts that in the facts thing. Two plus two is four, right? Pi is 3.4, 1, 4, whatever it is, you know, these kind of facts, these things that can be known in themselves. And then there are other kinds of messages, such as there's fresh water in the pool just to the west. The, en- the uh, enemy tribe is attacking tomorrow, right? And so he's faced this conundrum of like, what do I do with these two different kinds of knowledge? And the whole point of it from class was to say, and what I would say to this person is that what are you talking about when you say truth? Because there are two different ways of truth. There's mm. truth that can be known in itself, two plus two is four, and then there's truth that cannot be known apart from relationship. So this person is your mother, Father Sean Conroy. That is a truth that has to be known through relationship or that mm. the, the building's on fire. Somebody comes and runs in and tells us that. So I would just say, and I like, Jacob, what you were saying about just trust and relationship, but 
other than the reasonableness of the truth, it's it's how it's played out in a person and in that relationship. So rationality, relationality, that these are the things that lead us towards yep. truth. I wasn't that was uh, as short as I. Can I wasn't go. bored. I my phone buzzed and I have the Pavlovian response. We all do. That's right. Um, yeah, I'm I think anyways, with yeah. Augustine too, he says, you know, as far as like defending the truth, he says you don't need to defend the truth. Let it out. It's like a lion; it'll defend itself. And mm-hmm. so there's a bit of you know, the truth's out there and it's knowable and it's knowable in itself. Um, mm-hmm. you, you don't have to be afraid of not being able to find it, mm-hmm. uh, but it is in relation. And, and in Revelation. Yeah, and that, that question can get you into census fide, can mm-hmm. get you into tradition and papal infallibility and, and all and these all things. <laughs> but I would um, point out one abstract and one concrete, one abstract, but ultimately truth in all things. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're talking about truth in terms of what everyone is seeking to understand in you know all human beings, we're looking for Jesus. And through through Jesus, who is the revelation of the Father, coming to know God, which is a tricky thing um, compared to all other kinds of truths, and in part because Jesus is a person. So you have to know this truth in relationship. And then the other one is the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a sure norm for um, the teaching the truths of, of revelation and faith. And so the deposit of faith that's handed down and elaborated throughout, throughout time then you have a catechism that was published for the sake of the universal church of here's the, here's the, f- the foundational, or here, here's the fundamental points for all Catholics to know and a sure um, rule of, um, of truth and faith. And so if you're getting major contradictions to the catechism, and the catechism is accessible and every Catholic should um, be aware of it, then you can bring that up with the people who are contradicting that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it, it tries to summarize and articulate what the church wants us to consider truths or truth. I feel bad. All mine have been super long. So next. Hold on. I just want to add one more point to that. <laughs> if Christ is the truth, as, as Father Mike was just saying, and not a truth among many, he's not a truth next to the truths of biology and the truths of, I don't know, architectural engineering or whatever. If he's the truth, then to be Catholic means to to find truth, to love truth wherever it can be found. So it's 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 a it's a very different way of approaching truth uh, because it's in Christ. It's not just kind of a system that exists around. Okay, are we back to Sean? Sure. What is the definition of a saint? Is that right? We call the Archangel Michael Saint Michael, but sure. he wasn't human. Where is the cutoff in time for how far back you can live and still be a saint? Saints Joachim and Anne are saints. Are they the earliest saints, or would we call people from the Old Testament saints too? This is a great question. Kind of intimidated with Father Mike here. He's the scripture scholar. But um, yeah, so what's the definition of a saint? Uh, The most basic definition of a saint is one who is in heaven, right? So someone who's in heaven, which is why your, your grandma, let's say, who lived a very, very holy life, or my grandma, for instance, she prayed the rosary every night. She would always tell me that when she didn't finish, the angels would finish the rosary for her, right? Uh, I pray to her. I ask for her prayers. She's not canonized, but I'm comfortable um, with her holy life and, you know, that I can speak to her in a certain sense and ask for her prayers, hopefully in the capacity that she's able to intercede for us. So a saint, the basic definition is one who is in heaven. We have hope that all men are saved. We have hope that all go to heaven. Uh, Well, what about the angels then? In that sense, right, saint in Latin is what? 
Jacob, what is, how do you say saint in Latin? Uh, sanctus. Exactly, which means holy, right? So that's what we say at Mass every day. Sanctus, sanctus. Holy ones. Exactly. So the holy ones. So in that sense, the angels are saints because they're holy ones. They're the ones in heaven. And so we ask for their intercessions as well. Uh, the saints who are people who go to heaven, they have their bodies there, right? Angels don't, um, don't have bodies uh, in the same way we do. Thus, uh, it's, it's kind of equivocating, but yeah, saint, one who's in heaven, saint means a holy one. So we ask for the intercession of the saints and the angels. And there are just three angels that we call saints, right? Michael, Gabriel, and... Um, Raphael. And Raphael, because of their distinctive mission mm. and role in salvation history, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think know, so. I there's some, there's yeah. some extra tradition out there, or what do you call it, like a private revelation out yeah. there of other angels who are saints, but we don't have to get into yeah. that. And I'd say even in the New Testament, we talk about the, the saints of God is often just the Christians, the the uh, you know the members, believers in Christ on the way uh, were the saints of God, the holy ones of God. So... Um, Again, just kind of like apostles early on, there's, there's kind of multiple ways it's used. Absolutely. And then maybe just to touch on the last part of the question is like, what about the Old Testament? What about Moses or these these guys? And for what I understand, Father Mike, you can correct me on this, but we consider those who were righteous, those who lived a just life in the Old Testament to be saints. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, we don't always call them saints, but we can. Like I've heard people refer to Moses as Saint Moses or Saint Abraham, uh, and we can ask for those prayers. And a lot of them are actually in the calendar. David, King David's in the you know calendar. We can celebrate a mass uh, for his intercession and whatnot. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not sure how it works with the uh, the calendar of saints. I've seen them, and then I've not seen them. I think Moses was yesterday, or something was on the calendar. Um, and I don't know if those are like side calendars or something. There's like obligatory memorials, optional memorials, and then these other characters. But I think that's right. I think big biblical names in the Old Testament, patriarchs, and then some of these characters are considered saints. Um, they weren't obviously uh, baptized. They weren't canonized through a process. But um, there's a yeah, there's a presumption when Jesus went and descended into hell or went into the afterlife and then brought souls mm -hmm. into heaven, like um, it was Adam and Eve mentioned in First Peter. And then, um, then there, yeah, there's a presumption that the righteous are, are um, yeah, saints. They're in heaven. Mm -hmm. But, it, like, technically which ones, I'd have to look into that. I don't remember. I, I think it from the New Testament, right, Mike, like Paul refers to the saints of God, but he's talking about the church, right? Yeah. So like there's a sense of like, because sanctity or holiness is conformity to Christ. So that objectively happens through baptism. So the saints are those who are baptized to start, right? Okay, that's not just it. There has to be the subjective appropriation uh, in the life of grace. Um, but when Paul is talking about the saints, and I think that's what's tricky is that these these patriarchs, prophets who were holy, they were righteous according to the law. Their holiness was not uh, given to them through baptism, and that's why it's kind of a tricky thing. I think in the East they have more of a tradition of calling them yeah. actually Saint Moses, Saint Elijah, Saint. Yep. Um, but in the West we don't we don't do that as much. But I think it there certainly is a relationship there. Um, so, yeah, awesome. But Good. I also haven't seen really any devotions to wait I, nobody's picked abraham for their 
their confirmation. I know someone who picked um, Judas Maccabeus, and Archbishop Aquila said that's fine. So. Oh, yeah. See, there's there that. you go. All right, who are we have to now? Mike, you want to pick one? You got any uh, oh boy. jumping at you there? Well, I'm curious to, to hear what you guys would say about why are there no vocations in heaven? Because I think that one could use some clarifying, but it's also just a, a point of curiosity. I, I hesitate with that one because it's it's hard to give a real definitive <laughs> answer. <laughs> yeah, I but think I think it's an interesting question. Isn't this sure. one probably coming from you know Christ when he was asked about marriage? Uh, and he said, "You don't understand. You know, you're in in this life. You are given in marriage, um, but in heaven, it is not so." Yeah. Uh, so I think that's what. And he says, "But you will addressing. be like the angels in heaven, yeah. I, whatever that means." Which is interesting because we just talked about how uh, we're not <laughs> you don't angels, become an angel. and we yeah, are not, a body. Don't so an it's angel. like, yes, yeah, uh, I don't have an answer. I'm just I think there clarifying. is a vocation in heaven. There's one, and it's it's a it's consecration to Christ, and so the consecrated life, including the priesthood. Um, is taking on the, the vocation, so to speak, mm-hmm. of heaven. Marriage is elevated and sanctified as a sacrament, but it, it but because heaven is itself a marriage, it's like the union of the two, but it's the marriage right. with God. Um, and vocation is the calling and the means to get to heaven. And I think that's what they're saying, is like, why are there no vocations in heaven? Because vocation, in this sense, is the calling, is the means to get to heaven. Yeah, but if you mean that there's no states in life in heaven, there's one state in life, and it's being in Christ. So I guess that's the question. Oh, that's good. When yep. you talk about vocation, what do you mean? Because I think oftentimes, yeah. yeah, saying vocation here we kind of treat as an end in itself. I've got to yeah. find my vocation, and once I've found it, great, we're done. But it's like no vocation's the way. Vocation's right. the means uh, or the mode by which I am sanctifying or consecrating. And I love that 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 would be the vocation is the consecrated life of Christ or in Christ in heaven. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a great question. There is no marriage in heaven. There is no mass in heaven, but I think priests will, we have an indelible mark, will we'll have um, a uniqueness to that relationship with God in heaven because of that. Uh, I do have a question with this, though. If there's no marriage in heaven, does that mean, I'll use your parents, uh, Father John, uh, Daryl and Mary, when they get to heaven, will they still have a unique relationship in heaven? They're not married but they'll know each other maybe in a particular way versus like Daryl and some other random <laughs> woman. Um, you know, what, thought. You know yeah. what I'm asking? I think that, I think that t- it ties into the larger question of like, what is heaven going to be like? And I would guess just knowing you guys that we're probably on a similar page of like um, human experiences and human loves that are elevated in God are in heaven. So everybody's like, there's no dogs in heaven, and you got to tell these kids that. I'm like, okay, I, I get it. But Chesterton pushes back onto that, and he's like, well, uh, the loves of this life are are elevated into God, but they're not. There's there's no exclusion or real distinction. So my dad will love my mom in heaven, but it's it's purely the love of God because everything is perfected in that. Because because really, what he was loving in my mom was God. Mm. And, and that gets worked out through life. This is what vocations are. This is what marriage is. Um, but they feel opposed to each other, the loves of the world and the love of God. But when they're elevated and perfected, I think that they're there. So they answered your questions. I, I definitely think that he's going to recognize my mom in heaven right. and that there's a relationship. But then we don't have to take that to the extreme of like, they're dancing to Mac the Knife. In <laughs> This is like, oh. like uh, it's okay. It's, it's nice and sentimental. But, uh, you know, that kind of thing. It's uh, like, no, yeah. this is not exclusive to. Yeah. Well, and I think um, to the Mac the Knife point, uh, 
if marriage by definition is a sexual relationship and one that gives birth to children, then um, that peace is not a part of the heavenly reality. It's a, it is uh, there's, it's it's appropriate to the natural order on this side. Um, and to your point about um, our loves connecting us, I think because we believe in a resurrection of the body, that is a resurrection of each one of us as we are, like me, they, that's not just DNA and um, a kind of soul or personality or whatever that is. This is formed by my identity. Who I am is formed by all of the experiences in my life, most especially the relationships that we have and the loves that we have. So if I'm going to be resurrected, that means I am resurrected with my uh, with my loves, you know, and uh, that doesn't mean that every everything and everyone is going to be um, in the same relationship or proximity. I don't know a lot of this is mystery, but um, those relationships form our identity, and I think if we're going to be um, resurrected as a person, then that involves all the identity that very much includes the the people and the relationships. So how that that marital love has formed you is terribly important and you will be connected, but it it will have changed from this natural order. That's a great way of thinking about personhood, right? Because part of the weird eschatology that we can get into is like we're all autonomous beings and then we get kind of beamed up to heaven and then we're all just kind of beings and are we relating instead of like your vision which is a person is constituted by relationships like that's what makes persons and that so much so that god is relatio the persons of the trinity are relatio subsistence that god is relationship so to be perfect is to be in relationship which means that heaven is the totally relational place which makes me think that like everything's worked out and you're in more intensive relationship with everybody but it's in light of the fullness of relationship, which is God himself. Mm. So, In uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body, he says that the way we are made, male and female, something about our bodiliness is an image pointing to something else. And that the, the reality that that mutual uh, relationship points to is God desiring to become one flesh with us. And so that's where he, he pulls the theology of the body in to say, I know myself in the other that something pulls me out towards the other, uh, towards the woman as in a man's case or towards the man in a woman's case, pointing to that one fleshed union desired by God with humanity. And so if heaven is the, uh, the liturgical experience par excellence um, of what we celebrate at Mass, well, that liturgy is Christ's liturgy, the whole Christ, head and body. We are the body, he is the head. And it's this... Um, one flesh union. And so just more on the mystical than the practical side mm. of it, but love it. All right. You ready? Great. Let's move on. Go Great. Ahead. It's your turn for your question. Oh, fine. Uh, well, I figured since you're the Mariologist, all right. So, I mean, this kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier about, um, when you, when you were talking about, uh, Mary as the church and the church as feminine. Uh, so just going to Mary, uh, who is Mary? Is she the mediatrix of all grace? It's funny to be called a Mariologist because it makes me think if we're on the camping trip and this guy is a fishing guide, one of the new seminarians, mm-hmm. 
and we're all fishing and he's just like got so much pressure on him because he's the guide, you know, and he's up there and he's not catching anything. So I'm like, this is kind of the Mariologist. He's going to totally botch the Mariology question. Is Mary the Mediatrix of all grace? Yes. The answer is yes. I think what the question is asking is, has that been defined? Yes or no. And so it gets into the question of why do we define things? So the church has spoken about this language of mediatrics of graces, and I'll explain what it means. It's in connection to her motherhood and into the way that she relates to the order of grace. All right, that's the key to understanding. Pius XII uh, spoke explicitly about Mary as the mediatrics of grace, but it wasn't defined as a dogma like the Immaculate Conception of the Assumption. Uh, the popes of the last two centuries have talked about this theme. Basically what happens is this is that the first thing we figured out about Mary was we were reflecting on Christ, that he's got two natures, that he's body and soul. And that made us realize that, um, can you grab me a water, Mike? Thanks. Um, he just went to the uh, fridge, appreciate it. So that's the first thing is that Mary is the mother of God. She's and, and why? Okay, so her mission, her purpose, her whole existence is to be the mother of Jesus. But Jesus is the one who in his divinity, his humanity is totally graced. So she's given this, singular grace of the Immaculate Conception. Mary then contributes to the hypostatic order, and you guys are like, I feel like we're back in class here. But all of this is to say that Mary has a relationship in grace that is different than us because Mary contributed and gave Jesus his humanity. So her Immaculate Conception wasn't just like, she didn't get just the golden mushroom at the beginning of life. She had one grace that enveloped the entirety of her existence, and that was so that she could contribute a graced humanity to the God-man whose humanity would have to be graced. And it was graced by his divinity, but all of it plays out perfectly. What does this have to do with us? We're the body of Christ. If Mary is the one who gives the body to Jesus, it's her DNA, then she has a very intimate relationship supernaturally with the church as body, which means that Jesus is going to use Mary as he communicates all of his graces. So mediatrics, which is a dangerous word when we're talking to Protestant friends because they get confused because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. But mediatrics just means that he uses the same way that he became man to communicate his grace. He did it through the incarnation and he continues to do it through the incarnation. He became man through a woman and he continues to be born in us, in our humanity, in a woman. And mediatrics is the word. Why have we not defined it more clearly? Well, Things are only defined when they're violated. Mm. And I think the church, co-redemptrix, mediatrix, mm. there's just a pause around like, is this the best lang- language to describe this thing? Certainly it's legitimate language, but does it need to be kind of solemnly codified? The, the popes have said no, not necessarily at this point. Yeah, yeah, well said. And, and just to throw the language out there of like St. Louis de Montfort, right? It's, it's ad Jesum per Mariam, all to Jesus through Mary. Speaking of the incarnation. So I love that. Yeah, Jesus. Well done. Your eyes were rolling back a little in your head there. I was like, <laughs> oh, I've seen that look before in class. So no, thank you. I just, I love talking about this, but the, the whole point of it is like all of these things are really tied together in Mary. And, and it all comes back to her motherhood, that she's the mother of God. That That's the whole reason for her and her relationship with grace. All right. There's a, an image of Mary that is the moon, you remember, that's um, reflecting the light of the sun. So the moon doesn't have its own light, but it lights lights up the world in the night. 
and um, this is something of an image of the reflection or the the bridge that uh, mediatrix kind of um, is a word for, right? So all grace comes from God. All grace comes from Christ. Jesus died on the cross and rose. Not Mary, but um, yeah, all, all every grace comes through Mary. What was that podcast you did on Moon Dancing with Mary or whatever? Oh, Do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that the, was a, the, the the seas on the moon. The seas on the moon. That was a and wild the one. Seven sorrows of yeah, Mary. Yeah, that was cool. All right, Sean and Jacob, I'm coming. I'm throwing this back at you now. Uh oh, Father Sean, do you attend wedding? Do you, would you attend a wedding at a non-denominational <laughs> church of a baptized Catholic? So I think the question is saying, baptized Catholics getting married in a non-denominational or a church outside of the Catholic Church. What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the hardest questions. I, I really think it has to be done uh, or dealt with case by case scenario and something that you should discern. Uh, I've had this in my family at different times, and, and it's a difficult one. It's a hard one because you don't want to push people farther away from the church. And so maybe that's just the invitation of like, if you don't go to the wedding, will it cause more harm? And I think more times it will cause more harm by not going. Yes, it's an invalid marriage, uh, but it's not like an immoral marriage, right? It's still between a man and a woman. Uh, and so in that sense, you can actually be a big bridge to the church by going to the wedding. Um, so my recommendation would be, yeah, see if you can go and maybe have a side conversation of like, Hey, I would love to invite you into the the fullness of the church. I would love for you to maybe get married in the church one day, but by not going, you can really burn some bridges and really cut off uh, a lot of friendship and relationship. Um, so I would encourage the person if it, especially if it's in a Christian denomination, a Christian church, they're getting married before God. Yes. It's not the fullness, uh, but it's a step in the right direction. I think the old school line was like, it would be a scandal for a Catholic to go to um, the wedding of a Catholic getting married outside of the church. I don't think that's a scandal anymore. I think the world is so secularized that right. I do think, though, that it's the fine line. And you have personally done a really good job of this um, in our conversations of like, if you do something too drastic and you shut that door too hard, you can almost guarantee they'll never come back. Mm-hmm. Like, you really could push them out forever. But also, you gotta you gotta lean into it a bit, you know. And I think things like not being the best man. Um, some people don't go to the wedding; they go to the reception. Um, but I do think that yeah, it's it's one of those things of like finding the 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 fine line. And I know every I feel like everybody's in this situation now because the majority of Catholics are not getting married in the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a fact. And so, um, but th- those are the two extremes, you know. Not right. to not to go hardcore and just shut the whole thing down, but also not to just concede completely and, you know, find that balance. So yeah, there's a balance there somewhere. And just the encouragement when you do make that decision, trust in the Lord that he guides you to that place and live with the consequences. You're going to second guess yourself over and over again, but just stick with what you decide and trust the Lord. Any thoughts on that? Well said, Johnny. Yeah. I, I think you guys, um, covered it well in terms of the prudence and uh, formation of conscience. I think if you can find an opportunity, like you said, Sean, that to explain to the person a little bit where you're coming from uh, one way or another, that can be uh, very helpful. If you just say, no, I'm Catholic, I'm not going, and you don't sort of explain that, 
then you're doing a lot of harm in terms of suggesting that we're a cult that shuns people if they've kind of drifted or if they're making choices otherwise. Um, so I, I like just, you know, be ready for a conversation and go through, take it as an opportunity to learn about the faith. Like what does make it different than yeah. other, whatever, churches or religions, or something like that. Last question. Uh, Kevin. 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 Jacob. Jacob. Is Who's it real? <laughs> you you weren't here for the first. You'll, you'll, you'll have to you'll have to go back and listen to the first ten Kevin, minutes of the podcast. Where's Kevin? Is there somebody yeah. here that There's I'm not seeing? There's a weird quasi VeggieTales <laughs> reference that Kevin is going to fall from. The nobody sky. is going to get it except for me, so I had to explain. Anyway, um, somebody's going to get it. Some obscure <laughs> podcast Other listener than my is going to be dying laughing at this thing. <laughs> Kevin, okay, Jacob, is it really not as good to receive communion from an EMHC? Eucharistic Minister of Holy Communion. Wow. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, you're throwing the uh, the communion questions on me, so now I've got the uh, crosshairs. Um, qualified answer first, uh, no, it is not worse. You're receiving the body or the blood of Jesus Christ. You're receiving the sacrament through an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Why are they called an extraordinary minister uh, rather than the ordinary? We've got this weird flip where um, extraordinary always seems like special, or better, um, you know, this, this extraordinary thing happened, it means it's better. Well, in the church, the ordinary um, is actually the norm. The normative, so the ordinary minister is the priest, well, really the bishop, and then the priests through the bishop and the deacon um, become the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion, that they are the ones who are ordained and their mission and character is towards, uh, towards this liturgical act. The church has allowed, for um, necessary reasons, uh, for um, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. But it's very particular about uh, when um, when that's to be allowed. That an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion is not supposed to just be because the priest is like, I don't want to do it. The priest is the ordinary, right? Um, for you know, incredibly large masses where you have you know more people than priests could distribute. Um, if you actually read the documents of the church, it looks like we should probably have less extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion than we do. And that's, some people might get upset about that, um, because that's not, uh, you're taking away a way to participate in the Mass as a laity. Well, um, that's not your primary participation in the Mass, or your active participation in the Mass 1. Um, but in a situation where an extraordinary minister is warranted, or the local tradition has somewhat normalized it, you're still receiving the same Christ. And so I think it is a little strange, to be honest, if you're like walking down the aisle and Father's on the left side and there's an extraordinary minister on the right side, and you're like, I'm going to swap lines to go receive Jesus from the priest. Well, you're still receiving the same Jesus. So a bit qualified there. That sounds yeah, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah the, the most important thing is that you're receiving Christ in the blessed sacrament that's huge and um it's the same christ there's no like less grace or something like that from an extraordinary minister and then something of of the priest the priest in the liturgy is um is representing jesus in a particular way and so a lot of the liturgical action involves um, jesus entering into this moment of calvary um, at the last supper 
rising from the dead. And then there's this kind of going up into heaven and then coming down out to the, to the people, giving himself. There's something incarnational about the, the theology and pageantry of the liturgy that makes the, the priest giving, his, you know, mm-hmm. giving the body of Christ to be part of that, um, what, anamnesis, just the experience of encountering Jesus in this liturgical way. Um, pageantry might be the the wrong word, but something like that, the mo- movement, sacred yeah. order of the whole thing. So, And I think we need to really have the honest conversation of, like, there's ways we can do stuff, and there might be a better way to do it. Um, just because a permission is granted for various reasons doesn't mean we try to now find every single possible time to take that permission, rather the extraordinary circumstance, rather than the ordinary, what the Church has given us as, as the norm. Um but it is a valid and promulgated as a valid option. Yep. So I just want to yeah, say, like, is, don't yeah. don't d- despise or judge your p- local priest because if, he's using EMH. If he's yeah, using yeah. extraordinary ministers, and and they have to be trained and commissioned yeah. with a special reverence and yeah. education about what the Eucharist yeah. is. No, I mean, I, I think we've we've gone to an extreme with it where. You know, why are you receiving from an extraordinary person ninety five percent of the time? Mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. But also. Sometimes I'm like, we spend too much time thinking about how we're receiving Christ and not Rather what than we're, that receiving, we're receiving. Christ, that yeah. we're receiving Christ, and we talk a lot about should I kneel, should I stand, in the hand, on the tongue, extraordinary minister, these things. And it's like those are those are good, yeah. it's important, but they're not like anywhere more as important as just like this is the Eucharist. And so the answer to the question you covered well, which is that yeah, you know, I'd say too when the, when the USCCB the bishops. Um, are responding to the general instruction in which is like the general instruction is the liturgical law for the church um, from the top, and it says that reception of the communion reception of communion is normative by the local conferences of bishops. So the bishops come together and say this is how we receive. Uh, so the question on when to stand or how to stand, kneel, tongue, hand, whatever, um, the the liturgical law is throwing that to the bishop conferences, right? Um, and here in the U.S., the norm for since I think 86 or something has been uh, the the standard is to stand and receive in the hand. But it immediately says after that, if you would like to receive on the tongue, you can. Uh, and if you present yourself kneeling, you will still be given communion. I mean, they're not they're not trying to restrict you, but there was there was a norm that the bishops decided in light of of the law, right? Uh, that the bishop should decide this. But before any of that is promulgated, the USCCB, the bishops, spent like five or six paragraphs explaining what the reception of the Eucharist was, why we call it communion, that we become one body. We are in communion together with each other and with Christ. And so they really point out, like, are we, are we seeking our own individualistic liturgical expression and is that actually detrimental to the communion which we are professing? Uh, and it, so it spends five, six paragraphs talking about what communion is, that we're receiving Christ, that he makes us one in him, as his prayer in John was, that we may be one as you and I are one. And then it gets into the law. And I think we do exactly what you said, Father John. We put the law first, let me get the law down, and then maybe I'll have time to think about what I'm actually doing. And, and we've got to, I think we've got to turn that again. Yeah. Nice job, boys. Great. I think uh, we should probably wrap it up, do some shout-outs, unless you had any other... Do you have a name for this, Mike? 
No, I saw asking you shall receive. That's biblical. You like that? <laughs> I got a I got a fun shout out I want to share with you guys while you're all here. Um, so I'm on the Caro Trail and it's like day 26, 27. I'm way deep in the San Juans and it was a 23 mile day. And uh, I'm pulling up the shout outs thing real quick. And it was we were just exhausted. And for whatever circumstance, we had to camp about a mile or three quarters of a mile from the lake where we were pulling the water. We were trying to pull it out of this nasty kind of thing, but it was more of a swamp. So we ended up hiking down to the lake. So we're hiking along this lake and guys, and it's pouring rain and we just finished 23 miles and it's like Fraker, Phil, like every, just all the characters who've just been just giving me hell all day. So I'm walking around the lake and there's this family fishing on the other side. And they're just John back there. And I just like turn and just kind of chew him out. And this is a family show, so I will not say exactly what I said. And I turn back, and this guy goes, I recognize that voice. Is that Father Mike? Yes. And what I should have said was, yeah, I'm Father Mike. Yeah. (laughs) And he goes, no. And I was like, I'm Father John. And he goes, oh, I listen to the podcast. I love you guys. I just got mixed up uh, which voice, but I definitely know. And the guys were like dying because he recognized my voice by chewing them out like uh, around this lake. So he should have known it was you then. Yeah. So Matt and uh, Gavin, I think, was his wife and the kids, uh, and they live in Telluride, and they were just awesome. I just met right these on. amazing people yeah. just fishing on this tiny little lake, Paradise Lake, I think it was called, in the absolute middle of the San Juan. Crazy. And it was great. I loved to meet them, and they said to say hi to you, especially for the mic. Oh, Mike, thanks. So. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So that was a fun one. I I'm I was addressed in the last week um, twice. People in the chancery said, "Oh, hey, Father Ryan." I think it's O'Neill, oh, Father yeah. Ryan O'Neill. So shout out like to Father Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> I get confused for Father Dave Nix and Father Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> um, they're they're great guys, so I don't mind getting confused. Everybody's confused because you shaved her down the uh, goatee. I know yeah. I shaved the goatee down. It is yeah, kind of shocking and off-putting to most. <laughs> This lady in the in parish, uh, she comes up and she says, Oh, now you are beautiful. <laughs> like, hey, come on. That's so awesome. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out. So this episode will be released on September 15th, Our Lady of Sorrows. So just a shout out to my mom. I'm sure you guys have already done shout outs to your mothers, but I haven't yet. So shout go. out to my mom. A lot of suffering that I caused her. You know, Our Lady of Sorrows. Mothers suffer a lot for their children. So thank you, mom. Love you a lot. Very yeah. nice. Beautiful. Uh, so I just gave a retreat to the uh, permanent deacon candidates of the Archdiocese of Denver. And I can't name them all because there's a lot of them. But just a shout out. These are great guys. I love to see their enthusiasm for Christ. They were telling me they have a program that's like four years of, of formation for permanent deacons. These are the old guy deacons in your parish. And uh, they they were telling me that it's, it's like hard work because... You got your regular job all week, and then on weekends you come and do formation at the seminary. Uh, but they were saying they would love to have more. You know, yeah. they w- they want more schooling, and they kind of um, really take to it. So I, I love that these guys are great. I like watching them. They're like all stars out in the world, very successful men for the most part. And um, then they come into the program, and they're like little kids, all nervous and oh, what am I doing? And do I, you know, like stack up in this thing and then they get real confident by the end it's like the seminarians like father sean is like thinks he's 
big stuff and then they get ordained and they're back to being little kids kind of knees shaking at the liturgy and everything and i just find it really endearing mike zizda uh yeah mike zizda. he What's loved up, man? he loved your uh retreat so well done thanks mark I'm going to be sparse. I don't have any this week. I've got to save them up so they're more valuable when I do drop them. Okay, but most of that's just because I'm, I'm not as relational as these guys, and I've totally forgotten Whatever. the names of the people that I've <laughs> met. But there have been people who have come up to me. I'm sorry I've forgotten your names. Uh, mentioned the podcast. Some said they were really excited about um, the, this one particularly. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope we got to your questions. If not, keep sending them in. Thanks, everybody, for sending questions. That's yeah, great. Um, we also, um, uh, the 15th is... Um, so... Just as a final point, logistically, um, all four of the hosts are rotating evenly. So if you're kind of just kind of getting back into the podcast after the summer, uh, Father Sean and Jake Machado, a.k.a. Kevin, came on uh, in the spring. And Father Mike and I were doing most of the recording, then I disappeared all summer, and these guys really stepped in. But now that we're back in the routine, this is the fall kickoff. uh, So we are going to hopefully just be very consistent, and we love hearing from you. So keep the questions coming. We'll keep compiling them. Um, and uh, just thanks again for listening. We love doing and this and we love being with you. Can I add a note? Um, check out the, the social media stuff is going to be kind of back online. We had to do some um, staffing stuff and um, we have uh, kind of want to be like more intentional um, about making regular posts on Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. So if, if you've been away from that stuff, check it out. Or if you're new to it. Um, I have no idea how to find it. Catholic stuff, you should know, maybe. Yep. Just look it up. And then, of course, Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com for any uh, written correspondence. We love hearing from you. Um, well done, boys. The fall kickoff. We're rolling. Here we go. And we will uh, see you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.